0: I'm honored and we're honored today to have my older brother, Chuck, uh, Chuck Garriott uh, Grace the pulpit today. Uh, Chuck uh, is the director for Ministry to State, which is part of our uh, denomination's ministry to uh, really evangelism in discipleship among those in government. Uh, We're uh, seeking to bring the transforming truths of the gospel. Uh, to, to politicians uh, across the divides, uh, their staff and their families, and uh, to provide intelligent prayer for those things, and uh, both in the Washington, D.C., uh, the capitals of our country, as well as the international embassies throughout the world. That's a big vision. <laughs> uh, I knew my brother was uh, somewhat destined to political realm, when uh, in the ninth grade, he ran for uh, the student council president in our junior high school, and I have this memory of uh, some of the guys around him putting him on. Uh, there was a general assembly in the in the uh, gym where the uh, the student body would elect the the president, and uh, they they rigged up this little red wagon and put like a little uh, chariot design around it, and they got. Chuck on it and they ran him around the, the auditorium and they said, get on the chariot and vote for Garriott. <laughs> and I believe it was a landslide election. Uh, and he, so, uh, but Chuck was a pastor for 20 years in Oklahoma City. Uh, And while he was there, uh, he was asked to to lead a a Bible study over lunch in in the state capitol there. Um, And he initially didn't want to do it. He didn't feel like he had time, but he ended up doing it. Well, then it became a ministry of the church where they provided free lunch for any of the politicians or staff. And, well, it started to grow, and then even the governor participated. And uh, then Chuck eventually felt there needs to be a movement of... Bringing the gospel to bear among the leaders of our nation, Uh, and so uh, he and Debbie moved to D.C. about 15 years ago, uh, and started what's called ministry to state, and um, and it's just grown and God's blessed it. But uh, we're honored. uh, I'm honored to have Chuck uh, bring the word today. Thank you.
1: mentioned earlier that it has been uh, a great encouragement spiritually to see what God has been doing in the midst of this church here Faith Christian Fellowship through Craig and Maria uh, through the leadership here and Debbie and I have benefited greatly from not only uh, witnessing what God has been doing here but you all have prayed for us for many years you've supported us and we want you to know how much we appreciate that. Uh, I want to read a little bit more in the gospel, or in the, um, well, yeah, really the gospel of of Acts, uh, if I may say, uh, than what was read. I'm going to start at verse 37. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Will you please pray with me? Father in heaven, I do thank you for Faith Christian Fellowship, and I thank you for the ongoing, for decades, of encouragement that it has been to me personally, to Debbie, to our family. Father, thank you for your word that encourages us to take a fresh look at how you work within your people, within a community, within a world. And I pray that this morning you would remind us of some of these means that you use and show us personally what it is to not only understand but to apply it to our lives. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what Craig didn't tell you uh, about our past, and I'm sure he has, over the years, shared any number of things, but when I think about uh, what it was like for the two of us to be in high school together after that very successful time in junior high, and by the way, if you're in junior high and you consider it to be successful, that's pretty weird, actually. (laughs) But that's how it was for me, and in senior high, both Craig and I came to Christ. Uh, We grew up in a family that always went to church, and when I say always, it was always. Like, there was never a Sunday where we missed, but yet at the same time, neither of us really had a grasp of the gospel, and it was in high school through the Young Life ministry that both Craig and I, about the same period of time, came to know Christ. During that period of time, there were two individuals that were significant. Now, our older sister, Connie, uh, I should say, was a part of that, but the two other people that I would say were quite significant for us was one, a gal by the name of Johnny Erickson, who now is known as Johnny Erickson Tata. And Johnny, uh, at that point in her life, was about two years post, maybe three years post her tragic accident where she dove into the Chesapeake Bay and broke her neck and was paralyzed from the neck down. Fifty years later, that is still true. Uh, And yet, during those years when she was, I would say, recovering and uh, gaining a sense of what her life would be like, there was a guy that came into her life by the name of Steve Estes. And Steve, I would say, uh, discipled Johnny. I'll use that term. And I would say that both Steve Estes and Johnny Erickson discipled Craig and I, and we would spend time in a place up in Sykesville, which many of you would be familiar with, at the farm as we, as we knew of it. And the Erickson family had this ranch up there where they had horses, and it was just a really special place to be. But in that context, although it might be said a bit informally, that we were discipled we were brought into a relationship in such a way that we were reminded about the importance of Scripture. And I'll tell you now that if you've never really been in a church uh, and in a community where the Scriptures were prominent and understood, being in a relationship where you're being disciple, you're being challenged in terms of your knowledge of the Bible was very, very significant. And Steve Estes was a part of that, and those two people, when I think back on my life, and I think Craig would say the same, were the people responsible uh, in those early years of our walk with Christ for discipling us. The passage in front of us, here in Acts, is another example, it's another picture of what it looks like to be discipled. Now, it's a little bit veiled, you might say, but I want you to note today what it looked like for Peter To be someone who had been discipled, not by Steve Estes or Johnny Erickson Tata, but by Jesus himself, who spent not just hours or days or weeks, but years with the master, had seen the way in which he lived, had seen the way in which he handled circumstances, tough times as well as times of success, weddings, funerals, parties, etc. They had seen Jesus on this side of heaven, and they were able to watch him and to observe him and to appreciate the things that he experienced, and they were under his teaching. Now, that had to be an incredible experience. But Peter was discipled by Jesus as well as the other disciples, and I believe Peter was responsible, therefore, for carrying out that mode of ministry, and I would like you to see some of the particular aspects of what it means for Peter to have been disciple. And I would like us to reflect upon the book of, or this section of the book of Acts. So here's what we're gonna see. We're gonna see three things. First of all, we're gonna see a picture of redemption, meaning simply this, that when you think about discipleship, when you think about investing in someone's life, you need to understand that it will always be a picture of redemption. Now, as a particular church, you're involved, and I suspect, I think most of you know this, that you're involved in the selection or the pursuit of another pastor or pastors for this church. Now, that's a really challenging time to go through. And there's a pulpit committee, or there's a, a group within the church that is responsible for searching out this new pastor. Now, having been involved in selecting people for ministry and within the ministry, to state there in Washington, D.C., we're always looking for, for people to join our team, either in Washington, D.C. or in other state capitals. And, and uh, it's, it's a constant process of looking at resumes, or what we call in the Presbyterian Church in America, data forms. These ministerial data forms are really critical. They're long, sometimes they're kind of boring, but they tell you a lot about the person. Now, I would like you to look with me for a few moments at Peter's data form. And here's what you're going to see. You're going to see a guy, of course, who's a little bit fishy, right? I mean, he was a fisherman. And so here's a guy that has this background in as is in the fishing trade, which I don't know how that could be useful at all within ministry. But nevertheless, that's his background. And Jesus found that quite acceptable. So I'll have, to, I'll have to put that to the side and say it had to be okay. But to be honest with you, someone who's had a career, long career in fishing, I just don't know how well they're going to do in ministry. I and mean, you know what I mean? Like, what kind of seminary do you have to go through to be a fisherman and what kind of other education? I, it just doesn't quite match. But Jesus was fine with that. Okay, I'll give you that. But there's other things in his data form that concern me. Here's an example. There was an opportunity for Jesus, uh, or there was an opportunity for Peter to, to somewhat express himself when he was with Jesus, and Jesus was asking questions. And the main question was, who do people say that I am? Do you remember this in Matthew chapter 16? And, the, and some of the other disciples said, well, some are saying this, and some are saying that. And then Peter says, well... You're the Messiah. You are are the Messiah. And Jesus said to him, that's right. I'm paraphrasing. Well done. That is absolutely true. And there's a sense that Peter is really gaining uh, an understanding of all the things that Jesus had been teaching him. And then in the very next section of that same chapter... Jesus is with the disciples and he's explaining to them all the suffering and the difficulties that he's going to go through and that he is going to die. Now think about this. Here you've been with this guy. He's been training you, discipling you. You've been under his teaching. You've observed his ministry in all different ways. And you've seen miracles and you've seen seen how he's handled not just an individual or a small group of people, but thousands of people. And you've seen miracles. I mean, like, unbelievable miracles. And now he's standing there and he's saying to you and your friends, I'm going I'm to leave. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And, and Peter's like, what? This doesn't make any sense. And so he kind of does the Peter thing. He says to Jesus, this will never happen to you. Now, think about that does this show the kind of quality you would want for a spiritual leader? Because here's the point. Jesus had explained to the disciples a very, not just a very significant part of God's plan of redemption, but the very zenith, the very, the the bottom line, so to speak, of everything that God was about to do. And God and Jesus is expressing this to the disciples. And Peter says, no, no, this is not going to happen. Now, you want that kind of person? As a spiritual leader, you want that kind of person discipling other people? I don't think so. And then it gets worse. When you look at his data form, you see that later on, not that long afterwards. And by the way, Jesus said to Peter, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. It's kind of a statement that says you're not qualified. And this really is demonstrated when he's there. After he didn't pray, as he should have prayed in the garden for Jesus, right? He fell asleep. Have you ever fallen asleep? In, or have you ever seen your pastor fall asleep while he's praying in the pulpit? It's not a good sign, but, but this is on the resume. This is on the data form. But then later on, when Peter had an opportunity to be a witness for Jesus, what is he doing? He's denying him. And he doesn't do it just once. He does it three different times. Now... Come on, really? You're going to put somebody like that in a place of spiritual responsibility over others? And the answer is yes, according to the gospel. So when you think about what was said here in Luke, in Luke's writing here in the book of Acts, when you think about all that Peter had been through, now the man is standing up giving witness, not denying Jesus, but proclaiming his name and proclaiming the gospel. It is, in fact, a picture of redemption. And that must always be at the very forefront of any kind of discipling that none of us are worthy to be in our position. None of us. None of us. And we're all people who need God's grace and his mercy and his love. And when Peter stands up, I suspect these other disciples and other people who knew the background, they had to have sat there saying to themselves, this is an amazing picture. Now, secondly, I want you to understand that not only is discipleship a picture of God's redemption, it is a very clear message. I have found that the issue of messaging has become quite significant. And here's what I mean. I'm not, I'm not talking about the dynamic of messaging on your smartphone. And I realize that many of you may even be tempted now as as you're sitting there, you just have just one quick text to send someone, right? It's illegal. It, I don't know. I, there, maybe there's a sign on the door. You know, it's illegal to drive in text. I think it's illegal to worship in text as well. I know it's illegal to see movies in text, okay? I know that. I know you're not supposed because you could spill your popcorn and that would be a horrible. But... The thing is, is that we're not talking about that kind of messaging, nor are we talking about what I call the corporate messaging. I I shared earlier that Debbie and I, this past weekend, went to a restaurant. We had a lovely meal. Um, We paid a lot of money, and, like, I ate little carrots and little slivers of ham, and that was supposed to be the main. I mean, it was, like, unbelievable. What What really caught my attention was the message that this restaurant sent out in terms of its uh, or what it was calling itself, the title, or, or the, uh, the name of the restaurant is called A Rake's Progress. I'm like, a rake's, we're going to have dinner at A Rake's Progress. Now, some of you who are, who are more sophisticated and better educated, probably you can appreciate that. But I'm like, what does that say to the world? A Rake's Progress. Or how about this one? This one really gets me. This is a restaurant, only a couple blocks from where we live, Tail Up Goat. When was the last time you said to your date, hey, let's go and have dinner at tail up goat? I like it totally confuses me, right? Those kind of messages. The gospel is never to be a confusing message. It's not. And what's amazing to me to see within the context of Acts is that Peter is so absolutely crystal clear with the gospel. He understands the context of, or understands the context of, of those to whom he's speaking. Yes, they're, they're they're people from the diaspora. They 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 have an appreciation for Scripture. So as he begins, what does he do? He takes them where they are, meaning people who have a knowledge of the Old Testament. So he takes them to the Book of Joel, written some eight hundred years earlier, about this locust plague that was going to take place. And he's, and he's helping them see that in the context of what's happening now. These people are experiencing an incredible time within God's redemptive history. God's spirit is being poured out and they're experiencing it. And it's happening in the context of God's plan of redemption, which has been talked about for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. He wants them to understand that. He wants them to understand the context. He wants them to understand the significance of the scriptures how important it is and so he's quoting the scriptures but all of it all of it is centered upon one thing and that one thing is Jesus Christ it doesn't get any clearer than that and look if you again again because of time we won't go through it but if you look at his sermon it is an incredible exposition of God's word there is a commentary that uh, speaks about what was taking place here. And I'll just read what Lensky says. Peter had been but an ordinary fisherman. But here Luke's sketch of his sermon shows that it was a masterly, masterful, most effective discourse that was delivered without preparation or premeditation at the decisive moment on this day before an audience of thousands. This was possibly only by the aid of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Gospel. Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. He lived a perfect life. It was all within the context of God's redemptive purposes. What happened was not by accident. God actually planned it. Yes, the Jews, the Romans... We're responsible for taking him to the cross. It's like what Joseph said in Genesis chapter 50. You planned it for evil, but God planned it for good. And as Peter is expressing this and as he's proclaiming, not just a dead savior, but one who conquered the grave, it's all very basic and it's all probably within a 10-minute sermon. Right? That's a great... That's a great goal for us pastors, to have a 10-minute sermon. All right, thirdly then, not only is it a picture of redemption, not only is it a very clear message, but last of all, it had an impact. And we read that these people were, were impacted by what Peter had preached. They could have said, hey, you know, we know that you're a hypocrite. We know that you've denied Jesus. I'm sure maybe some of those thoughts may have come within Peter's mind as he was standing there. But that's not what they said. The Holy Spirit clearly had worked within their lives and were told that thousands of people had come to Jesus. But here's the reality. Not only do we see what the impact of the gospel was upon these people there in Jerusalem and then the fact that they later on were told the fellowship that they had and the kind of church that they were a part of. But let's see what happened within not only a a year or two, but, but 100 years and 200 years and many, many more. There is a sociologist by the name of Stark who writes about the rise of Christianity. If you haven't read his book, it really is a helpful tool, I think, to get a, uh, a sense of what was happening within the Roman Empire in regards to the gospel. It all starts, really, if you think about it, with, with Peter here. But over the course of like 350 years, Stark makes this uh, argument that what was so very, very small continued to grow and grow and grow. And the gospel continued to have an impact, not only in Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria or the, ends of the, or the other ends of the earth, but he says they continued to grow generation after generation. So that by the time you come to Constantine, 300, 350 years later, or, or, AD, or 350 years AD, he says that you have, in essence, almost half of the Roman Empire, making some, proclama, making some acknowledgement of Christ. And some would argue that, oh, no, no, it was what Constantine did. But others say, no, it was already there and Constantine just happened to, to fall upon it, you might say. 300 out of, I'm sorry, out, of, out of 60 million, 30 million, Stark says, were making a profession of faith. Now what's happened Presently. Well, think about it. What What's the population within the world today? 7, million, seven billion people, right? China and India are some of the largest of the countries. They're well over a, a billion each. But how many out of that seven billion are Christians? And we're told that it's something over two billion. It's about a third of the world's population. If you turn the clock back 100 years to 1910, you'll see that Christianity was still about a third, but the numbers were different. The, whole po- the population of the world was 1.8 billion, and about 600 million were Christians. But what you're seeing over the course of time, if you think about it, is the consequences of God's spirit working in the life of a guy like Peter and the other disciples who were dedicated towards investing in the world for the sake of the gospel. And what I believe they saw and happened with Christ, the same was experienced through them. There's an interesting dynamic, I think, today in terms of the church. And I'll just simply conclude with this. We are seeing within the United States, I'll say somewhat of a phenomenon in terms of who's going to church and who isn't, who's interested in the church ministry and who isn't. And what we're seeing, according to people like Barna, who do a lot of research in this area, is that less, that is, there are fewer people who are interested in the ministry of the church than 10 years ago, and 20 years ago, and 30 years ago. Meaning, simply, that there are a lot of people out there, many who aren't Christians, but some who are, But they're basically saying, I don't want anything to do with the church. There was a book out called, I Like Jesus, But I Don't Like the Church. And it accented the fact that there are these groups of people in growing numbers that won't come to a church regardless of its worship, of its denomination, of its preaching, etc. They just simply won't come. So here's what I believe it's telling us as a church. It's not saying that we don't continue to have church. It's not saying that we don't continue to plant good churches. What it is saying, I believe, is that the church needs to be engaged in its community in an individual way. That is, you sitting here today need to be like Peter was when he was under Jesus, or in a sense, like Craig and myself were back in the high school days, where we were being in, that we were being the recipients of an of an individual's investment in our lives for the sake of the gospel. Now think about this: there are people with whom you work, their neighbors, they might be relatives, maybe children or parents, are good friends that need to see the gospel. They need to see it on a one-on-one basis. And there are friends who would be willing to spend time with you, reading scripture, praying together, just talking through life issues. One of the major emphases of ministry to state is to take the gospel into the workplace and particularly into a government workplace. And one of the things that I've seen as a pastor who had been in the pastorate for almost 25 years, is that there are people there in the workplace, in this case, the government workplace, that I would never be able to reach by a congregation. It just just wouldn't happen. And so my prayer for us as a church, whether it be in Washington DC or Baltimore or any other city or community or suburbs of the world, that we would see those individuals in the church take on the mandate of discipling others just one person at a time, and to be prayerful about what it means for you to invest in someone else's life. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for the life of Peter, who is clearly a picture of redemption, who had a very clear message in the gospel and was used by you by the Holy Spirit and continues as well. I pray that for each of us, that you would place those individuals in our lives that we would be willing to pray for and to love and care and to disciple. And Father, we ask that you would, in that context, remind us of your redemptive work, of your clear gospel, and how your spirit is the one that has the impact. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks,
0: Chuck, for that gospel encouragement. Let's stand as we celebrate in Jesus' worthiness as the Lamb of God.